welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, I have Braden Warwick, Research Associate at PWL Capital. Braden has recently composed a study on optimal compensation savings and consumption for business owners of private corporations. Now, this actually was a pretty extensive deep dive at a lot of things that started by looking at, I think, IPP specifically, but then looked at compensation structures and methodologies and answered it and had a number of interesting findings. So they had asked me to kind of give them a peer review on the paper. And when that happened, I said, hey, you should come on the podcast and talk about the implications of this because it touches upon a lot of things. So with that introduction, here's my interview with Braden. Braden, thank you for taking the time today. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. My pleasure. So Braden Warwick, uh, PWL, uh, tell us about yourself and what it is you do. Yeah, for sure. So like you mentioned, I'm a research associate at PWL Capital. I've been with them for a few years now, primarily investigating complicated questions like this. And my background's in engineering, actually. So I did a, a bachelor's degree and a PhD at Queen's University, and then uh, kind of kind of left that field, switched over to PWL Capital, mm-hmm. where I've been just tasked with, with answering complex problems that, that they were having in the firm, one of them being this financial planning for owners of corporations, uh, which kind of ties into this research paper. And just to, to kind of give a, a sense of the business problem that we're having, so these the owners of corporations kind of uh, pose a complicated problem, but also it's not necessarily as niche of a, a problem as it, you may think, because this sort of this individual may be a, a small business owner, but also a physician, a dentist, a lawyer. So there's there's tons of potential clients for our firm that are facing these types of problems. And quite frankly, we weren't satisfied with the level of financial planning advice that we could give to them with off-the-shelf software that we were using. And the the reason for that is it ultimately boils down to these problems typically compose three different fields in a sense. The individual with the corporation goes to a financial planner to ask them, what's the optimal financial plan for me? How do I compensate myself out, out of my corporation? Do I pay myself a salary? Do I pay myself a dividend? But what does that look like? And the financial planner using the tools that they have available can kind of piecemeal together a plan for them, but then the, which may or may not be satisfactory, but then the, the individual might go to their accountant and then the accountant is telling them about different estate planning strategies or different notional account balances and different compensation of dividend packages that they can distribute involving capital dividends, which are tax-free and all of these different pieces of the puzzle, which the financial planner can't, doesn't necessarily have this, the tools to be able to incorporate all of those details into the financial plan. And then the, the other Just piece. Interject there. I mean, I think you're like, you know, I think what you're getting at and what you're right about is that, you know, a lot of times these questions are dealt with in isolation and silos, right? Like, is an IPP work? Well, the answer is it depends. Let's look at it for you. You look at numbers for an individual. Do dividends or, or, or um, income make sense? Well, the answer is different on different for different people and different provinces. And then the notional account stuff like it also like these are all factors that are typically looked at in isolation, right? I think trying to bring those in and harmonize them. You know, we do that in financial plans and try to get to the best optimal one, but no one's really kind of done what you've done here, which is kind of like bring all these things into one study 
and look at optimization across everything. Well, and that's that's exactly adjacent. And then to add the third piece of that puzzle is the IPPs, which it's a similar silo where mm-hmm. uh, the individual might go to an actuary and the actuary can give them uh, a calculation of how much more contributions that they can make to an IPP in comparison to an RRSP. But again, that doesn't answer the fundamental question about that the client or that the individual would have is how much money can I actually spend sustainably and what will be optimal in terms of my final net worth that I can leave to my future generations or charity or what have you. Yeah. And that's, that's it. Exactly. It's again, it's the entire, yeah, you get that quote and says, Oh, 30% more. Well, that looks great. But what about everything? That's an isolation. It's not optimal for the individual, which takes into consideration many other factors. And, and just uh, for people listening who want to know more about what we're talking about in terms of IPPs or individual pension plans or the concepts of notional accounts, these were all on previous episodes. You'll find them, you'll find an episode on IPPs, one on the fundamentals of a book of accounting and finance for business owners. So if you're interested in learning more about those, please go back and listen to those episodes. We'll post the numbers in the show notes. So, okay, you're trying to solve for kind of like, I'm not going to call it the everything study, but you're trying to solve for the key issues around compensation and really retirement savings, because dividends versus income is one thing versus notional account type distributions, right? And then at the same time, you've got all these vehicles for for retirement savings. You got the corporation, the RSP, the TFSA, the IPP. How does this all play out? So what was your approach to how you started tackling this question? Yeah, it's a good point. So the first step, honestly, was understand what all of these different vehicles are and, and how to calculate. And that's for me anyways, being relatively new to the world of finance was not a trivial task because especially with things like IPPs, you can't just Google that. That information is just not readily available. So for us, it was about reaching out to, to subject matter experts in that area. We needed to consult with actuaries. We needed to consult with accountants to kind of give us the details and the weeds of how these, how these calculations are made so that we could, we could capture that in, in our own financial planning model. So that was step one. And then in terms of the paper, that's kind of the first half of the paper is really explaining all that we've learned and all of the different pieces of the puzzle, estate planning strategies, IPPs, all of that fun stuff is, uh, is described well and is, is kind of, it's going to be our book of reference moving forward when, when clients have sophisticated questions regarding these topics. And then the second piece was, was the case study which we wanted to really try to capture as realistic problem as we could, uh, starting from the a very high level. An individual would, would come to us with the question of how much can I sustainably spend over the course of my lifetime? And then how much net worth will I be left with on average at the end of the day? And what's the best plan to get me there and to, and to maximize those values? So, all right. So you, you start off by defining the problem while well, you do all the research, explain to people everything, which is foundational. Absolutely. I mean, also great. If it's your, if it's your guiding document for the company, great. You know, you have a wonderful training tool because everybody can get explained as to what happened there. So in terms of your methodology, once you had that laid out, how did you attack basically comparing these options? Yeah, for sure. So fundamentally, it's, we approached it as a, a multi-objective optimization problem. Mm-hmm. And with two objectives. The first objective is to maximize spending with the constraint of a 90% Monte Carlo success rate. So and basically, then, just to explain for the lay people, when we test this randomly against a universe of possible returns, nine out of 10 times, it is 100, well, 90% of the time, there is no deviation from that spending level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 
that was the first objective. And then the second objective is just maximizing final net worth. And because it's a multi-objective problem like that, there may be some individuals with a preference more towards one end or the other. There might be individuals that have a preference for maximizing every last cent of consumption that they can, that they can squeeze out of a plan. But there might also be clients that are content with spending a lower amount if they want to maximize that multi-generational wealth or a bequest, a charitable donation, something like that. So, so that leaves... So because we approached it in that way, it leaves, there's not a clear cut optimal solution across the board. It really depends on what the, what the individual prefers and what they want out of it. Rightly so. You accommodate for preference, right? Which is yep. something, a vital component. Okay. So you did that. And let's talk about the different approaches to income as a starting point. Let's go through the options that you tested there. For sure. So we tested a whole bunch of different salary levels, um, starting with no salary at all. Um, just, so just compensating with only dividends from the corporation, all the way up to what we call the maximum salary, which is the salary that generates maximum RSP contribution room moving forward. And we also had a, a separate strategy, which I called the dynamic salary strategy. And what that did was it prioritized minimizing notional accounts within the corporation. So examples are capital dividend account. So capital dividends get passed tax-free from the corporation to the individual. And there's also RDTOH accounts, which are basically a tax refund. So we wanted to, with the dynamic salary strategy, it, it prioritized taking those first, getting our tax-free capital dividend, getting that tax refund from the corp into the hands of the individual so that they could use that for consumption. And then uh, once those accounts are, are minimized, then, then it'll take salary based on that. So what that looks like in practice for, say, a younger individual that's just starting out has lower values in their corporation and lower notional account values. What that looks like is at the start, they'll take a higher amount of salary. They'll generate that RSP contribution room. And then as the corporation builds up assets, they'll also build up notional account values. And then that's, there'll be a switch at some point where the notional accounts get so big that consumption is primarily driven by dividends and then salary falls off. But you've already built up a big nest of RSP room and RSP account value on the personal side. Yeah. And just for the layperson to go back up and listen to the previous episodes, you know, these are these are the returns that are generated by investments within the corporation, not from operations. And they produce the ability to draw down money in a very tax efficient manner that's more tax efficient than the normal income or dividend options. And therefore, they are, again, it makes sense. If you're trying to maximize wealth, why wouldn't you take income in the most tax effective format possible? So, okay, so that, that said, so you, you basically targeted a certain income, tried those kind of three methodologies. And, uh, but I would say, though, let's keep something clear here. So if you're taking a dividend, or you're taking, you know, their dynamic dynamic type of income. That sort of income doesn't attract CPP contributions or RSP room, right? So there is a trade-off there that people need to be aware of. Yeah, exactly, and that's part of what we wanted to capture is that whole that whole effect of when you take salary that generates RSP contribution room in the future. And then also, like you mentioned, Jason, with the CPP, we also scaled CPP benefits and retirement down in the case of, of the dividend strategy, because you wouldn't be contributing as much as you would be otherwise if you're taking that full salary. 
Yeah. So, I mean, and this is, I think, if people listening are getting a sense for why this is a complicated question, look how many variables we just identified on the income side alone, right? We haven't even started talking about where to put the money, right? So yeah. it's a separate piece. Okay. So you have those options for income. So you're going to test all of those. And then you're going to simultaneously test the optimal allocation to different account types. So how'd you do that? Right. So, yeah, so we, we tested, well, we wanted to test the, the trade-off between a corporation and, and personal accounts, but then also the IPP, which was the big differentiator. Should we, if we, depending on, on this income distribution, there's also a different pathway that involves taking a salary and, and alongside an IPP which is an entirely different structure, but ultimately the benefits of the IPP are a uh, larger contribution room because it's, it's somewhat equivalent to a defined benefit pension and the way that the calculations are made. So they're not like RSP contribution room is a simple calculation of 18% of your salary up to a maximum, but, but the IPP contribution is, is based on um, different actuarial calculations and it, and the big piece is that it changes on a year-by-year -year basis. So for younger individuals, the IPP contribution actually might be less. The calculation would come out to be less than the equivalent RSP contribution. But then as the, once the individual is in their 40s, then it, it kind of switches where IPP contributions become significantly larger than the RSP. So the idea, though, is there's a bit of a, a sweet spot to, to the IPP. It's really like the main benefit is taking assets that would be located into a, in a corporation typically and and putting them into an IPP because it's a tax deferred vehicle. So if you don't have the assets in the IPP, well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, to go ahead and set one up. But if you do, then it possibly might make sense. And that's really what we want to look at. Good. So considered all of those. And now let's go through this. So you got three different forms of income, one of which is dynamic, right? So that's changing every year, depending on what the results of the returns are in the corporation. Right. And then you also simultaneously then tested for all these money being put into all these different accounts. So corporate, IPP, RSP, uh, TFSA, already the number, you know, start doing, start, start, start exponentially, you know, calculating how many different variables there were. This is enormous. So like one of the things that I, I commented on was when I saw how many data points you were working with, I'm like, okay, I respect your ability to, to, to basically to basically beat yourself down over this because that's a lot of work. So, you know, let's let's give some people idea of the scale of the problem. How big was the the, the scale of this actual report or the, the study? Yeah, for sure. So the, the final paper investigated over 7 million financial planning outcomes. I love that. <laughs> um, and, and, and the funny thing is that's, that's a much scaled down version than what we had previously. We actually initially investigated a whole ton more, but it was just so huge that uh, it was- Oh no, 7 million was not ridiculous enough. You had to yeah, no, yeah, yeah ex exactly, right? So, but yeah, that, that's the scale that we're working at. So we had to, the, the other challenge, the other side of the coin was we have to make this analysis computationally efficient enough that this is feasible. And we're actually able to do those 7 million financial planning studies in, in approximately 20 minutes of compute yeah. time. Oh, I mean, given the compute power these days, that's uh, <laughs> still a lot of time. All right. Yeah. So the so reading through this, there was, I will say, a number of things that were that jumped out. One or two, like certain interesting factoids that people aren't aware of if they're not in the space. So for example, the transition rate on, on corporate taxation, which we'll get to in a second. And then there were other things that I thought were pretty intuitive results. And then there were other ones that were really surprising to me. And when, when you think back about the logic, 
looking back at it, you say, okay, that makes sense. So I kind of want to go through some of the some of the the bigger things that I think jumped out, and I think you can open up for anything else you think was another key finding. But as I alluded to, the first piece is the transition rates. So let's talk about what that is and why that's a unique planning opportunity in two different provinces. Right. Yeah. So interesting. So in, in Ontario and New Brunswick, they both have a similar corporate tax structure where there's this transition rate that Jason alluded to, which is kind of in between the small business rate and the general federal rate. And it exists because those two provinces decided not to adopt the general federal rate on certain levels of income. So once you're, but the interesting part though, is when you're, because they chose not to, even though they chose not to adopt that general federal rate, that income range still generates grip, which ultimately allows the a non-eligible dividend to be converted into an eligible dividend. So it's much more tax efficient mm-hmm. when it's paid out on to the individual. So let's go over some fundamentals here and make sure people have context. So what happens is, is that when you're over $50,000 of passive income or aggregate adjusted investment income is the actual term for it, but think of it as return that you've earned that's from investments. What happens is, is that every dollar after that, the Fed start reducing your access to the small business tax rate. The small business tax rate, for example, in Ontario is 12.2% on the first half million. But if you make more than $50,000 in say interest, the next dollar of interest takes away access to $5 of that, of that small business tax rate. And that the entire small business tax rate disappears at $150,000 of passive income. And that means that your rate goes from 12.2% to 12.65%. Now, that's a big that's a big leap, but keep in mind that it's it, it's it's technically it technically doesn't increase your taxes. It temporarily increases your taxes because if you pay that money out personally, it all equals the same things if you earned it personally under integration, which we covered before. So, but the key here is is that there's this period of transition of one hundred fifty thousand dollars of passive income, and Ontario and New Brunswick decided not to follow the federal guidelines on this when they basically brought them into into bear. So instead of having two rates that exist. In Ontario, New Brunswick, there's actually three rates for corporations, but only if you're generating passive income. And as you said, GRIP. So GRIP is one of these notional accounts, which basically allows you to pay out. GRIP is the tells you how much money you can pay out as a qualified dividend, which basically means that you're paying less than a normal small business dividend, which is an, which is not a qualified dividend. So long story short is you got this interesting little thing, a little area where you're paying more than 12.2. You're paying in Ontario 18.2, which is still less than 26.5. So you got you got a gap. But then you also have the ability to take out at a lower rate, which creates, like I said, an interesting planning opportunity. So can you tell me what happens when that money gets paid out? Yeah. So the interesting finding that we saw in the paper was that the net personal cash is actually higher in the transition zone than it is with either the small business rate or the general corporate. So it's, it's kind of this nice little sweet spot where it, we end up with the, the highest net personal cash once all of those variables are considered. Yeah. So, I mean, just to get people an idea, idea, sorry, idea of it, when you look at what we got gets paid out, when you pay out money at the small business rate corporately, so you're in a hundred thousand dollars, you take out money as a dividend, you basically pay a person versus corporately. You found that I think it was Ontario is 54.12 roughly, which is not far from 55, 53.53, which is a normal personal rate. The general rate was 55.41, but the transition zone was 50.38, which means that you're actually paying less on that passive income if you distribute it. Than you would have. And it's funny because why I think it's funny is because there's a lot of planning around avoiding making more than $50,000 in the corp to keep access to it. But really, that's almost counterintuitive if you want to take that money out now, right? Because it's actually a slight tax benefit. That's exactly it. So really, the planning should be 
around keeping the passive income below 150 because that's when the general corporate kicks in and and then you're still in that sweet spot of the transition zone for Ontario and New Brunswick residents. Yeah. So unique planning opportunity for two provinces. And I think the key takeaway is don't look at the $150,000, the, the over 50000 of adjusted uh, annual adjusted investment income, uh, whatever the acronym actually works out to be. And don't look at that solely as a negative. That's actually a planning opportunity if you're smart about it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. One key takeaway, which I have to dig at because it comes up from time to time, <laughs> was um, there's some pensions or IPPs or 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 other branded IPPs that go by other names that are made up that offer this option for a hybrid. So basically, I can either do the defined benefit contribution or I can do a uh, I can make a defined benefit uh, sorry defined contribution plan, which is basically like an RSP contribution limit. I think you had one line there that summed it up. It was really of no tangible benefit to the study, was it? That option. Not really. Where it kicks into place is for, like I alluded to previously, for those younger individuals where the calculation actually comes up that the IPP contribution would be less than the equivalent RSP contribution, they can choose to, to contribute the full RSP contribution room. But the, the problem is, is that there's added actuarial costs associated with setting up the IPP. So all else equal, if, if the room is equal on both sides, then it pretty much becomes null. Um, you might as well wait until you're the age where the IPP actually starts showing benefits and showing added contribution room because you can, with the IPP, there's this concept of, of purchasing past service. So all of the years that you've previously worked, you can, you can purchase those and, and basically transfer your RSP assets into the IPP. And then if any additional corporate funding is required to purchase that service, then that opens up an additional contribution room from the corporation into the IPP. Excellent. So long been saying it, but thank you for reaffirming it. The next kind of key, interesting takeaway, I think, and I'm just going through the ones kind of in order that I saw, was how you addressed the diminishing long-term value of the CDA account. So the CDA is, I had a capital gain in the corporation. Half of that gets booked as a capital dividend account credit, which is a portion, which is the non-taxable portion of the capital gain that I can, as a business owner, draw at any time tax-free. But you made a point on how the real value of this diminishes over time. Can you expand on that? That's exactly it. So Typically, we think in terms of notional dollars, and you wouldn't really put much thought into, into that CDA room being available always to you to, to take out cash free. But the problem is, is when you start thinking through the lens of real dollars, we notice that that, that, val- that account value is staying constant in nominal terms. But when we look through the real lens, we see that it's actually decreasing. So that's part of the reason why I decided on investigating that dynamic salary strategy, because the longer that CDA sits in there, or the longer those tax refunds sit in those notional accounts, the lower the purchasing power becomes over time. And especially if we're, we're talking years later, it could be a pretty substantial difference. Yeah. I think one of the key things to remember here is that having money personally versus corporately in today's dollars is more valuable because, hey, you know, you may see $100,000 in the corporate or $100,000 personally is the same money. Well, no, because there's a deferred tax liability in that hundred grand, right? And what you're basically saying is that, hey, that, that $100,000 you're owed from the company never goes up over time. So $100,000 tomorrow in the future is not worth the same thing as today. So, I mean, this kind of always goes into, this kind of played into my normal best practice, which is as soon as the CDA is available and you confirm that just, you know, even if you have the money, just book it as a loan to the shareholder and draw it down as fast as possible because that, or as, as soon as you need it, because frankly, hey, it's literally tax-free money at this point, like that, that portion of it, right? 
So makes exactly. a lot of, makes a lot of sense. So the, the, the moral of the story there is is better to take that sooner than later. Otherwise, the real value of it diminishes over time. Now you found the same thing for the other notional accounts, but not to the same degree. So how did the various forms of RDTOH and GRIP basically play out in this scenario? Yeah, for sure. So CDA, the capital dividend, absolutely has the the highest diminished returns, and that's because ultimately you're you're taking a tax free dividend, and then you'd have to you have to convert that into a non-eligible dividend, which would be taxed much higher. Um, and, and it kind of, the other accounts kind of uh, generated similar, a similar story in terms of the ERDTOH account um, generating the second, the second highest diminished return because just because of the tax benefits of the eligible dividends. And, and just for some more context around ERDTOH, it's if you take it, in the same year that, that that is generated. So meaning if your corporation earns an eligible dividend on their investment portfolio, and then you pay out an eligible dividend to the individual and then capture that tax refund, uh, you, you'll be able to recover the full amount. But for the non-eligible RDTOH, there is some tax that gets lost. So it's not a full one-to-one pass-through. So again, having that... The, for the NRDTOH, it's not quite as beneficial to, to pass it through immediately just because there is some tax that's getting lost no matter what. And then the third, uh, or sorry, the fourth worst would be the grip because, because really you're just converting a non-eligible dividend to an eligible dividend on, on the personal account. So it really depends on the difference in, in uh, tax rates that you're, that you're trading between leading from the capital dividend account, generating the highest diminished return over time and the grip having the lowest diminished return over time. Fair enough. So definitely found a way to prioritize what order those should be coming in, which is a question that comes up all the time. Should I pull this? Should I pull that? And you're basically looking at it, not just from the lens of taxation, but from the lens of actual time value of money. So that actually great takeaway from that one. So the basically you ran all these, all these different options. Now, one of the things that also came up was basically what happens when the person hits retirement? And they have an option for what they're going to do with their pension, right? So assuming they're not continuing it, like they sell the business or they're getting out of the business or they're closing it down, whatever it is, right? They have a couple of options. They can either keep the, the account as is and just continue to basically draw money from down from it. They can buy an annuity or they can wind it down, which basically means transferring a portion, a large portion of it to a lock-in RSP equivalent, like anytime you take money out, like when you do a commuted value of a pension normally, and then the rest of it, there's going to be a taxable portion. So, and a sizable one, typically a six-figure taxable portion. So there's been a lot of aversion to, I think, the commuted value option with, with IPPs, but you had a finding on, on which of those actually plays out the best long run that I found surprising at first, but then intuitive afterwards. Care to share? Yeah, for sure. So first, before I get into the result, let's go back to the objective of the analysis, which was one of them being the sustainable spending. So you want to maximize your sustainable spending with the constraint that it's successful nine times out of 10, like Jason explained. So what that implies though, is that that in order to maximize consumption subject to that constraint, the main driver of that performance is actually the worst 10% of outcomes. So if we're thinking in terms of a return from a portfolio, if, if stock markets do poorly, that obviously would generate a poor outcome. So in the outcomes where stocks do poorly over the lifetime of the simulation obviously has a big impact on on which strategy is optimal if we're trying to push sustainable spending as high as it can go. 
So with that said, if we're thinking about the three pathways for the IPP that Jason described, if if investment returns are bad and the size of the portfolio is is small because of that, there actually is a is no tax impact when we're converting the IPP to the RSP because that calculation again is an actuarial calculation, but it's it's based on different annuity factors and things like that. So when we when we do that calculation, you know, typically in, in good times, there would be a taxable liability like Jason alluded to, but in bad times, there wouldn't be. So you might as well convert it to the RSP. You have more flexibility in the benefit that you want to pay out because you're only constrained to RIF minimums. Whereas in the pension, you're obligated to take out the guarantee, the income the pension was targeting in the first place. So exactly. Yeah. So I can, with the RSP, I can take out RIF minimum or any amount thereof. So that inherent flexibility is, is valuable. Exactly. And it allows us to prioritize passing through some of those notional accounts that we just described previously. So we mm-hmm. can fund consumption with capital dividend tax-free because now we're not obligated to take out that higher IPP benefit that we would, we would be otherwise. And then, of course, there's also the added benefit that we don't have to pay actuarial costs of doing these actuarial evaluations on the IPP every three years, which is relatively small, but still worth mentioning. Absolutely. Oh, there's a friction cost. Okay. So, so yeah, so there's cases where you don't hit the target and, or you don't hit the, the presumed value, in which case, yeah, there's no, there's no cost to doing it. But then there is times where let's, let's face it, you could be, this pensions can be up to, was it 30% overfunded or 25% overfunded before they have to take a holiday. So it's, there's also a possibility that you end up with more than can go into an RSP or Lira. What, so that's the taxable portion, right? In those cases, your findings were. Yeah. So when there is a taxable hit, that's obviously not as beneficial to commute to the RSP. And, and one thing that I want to look into f- for future work is to actually set up an algorithm so that depending on the taxable liability that occurs at the point in time where IPP benefits start, that we would there would be a decision. And if there's no taxable benefit, then it would choose the path to to take or to take the commuted value and toss it into an RSP. But if there is a taxable liability owed, then it would just continue maintaining the IPP and then paying out the the benefit. But at the end of the day, also, it's also going to be, I think in general, I think your findings system the effect of it's relative to the size of that piece, right? Because, hey, having to take 50 grand out and getting rid of the additional overhead cost, no, no big deal. If I'm overfunded, then that's a pretty substantial tax hit. Well, exactly. And then the, the reason why I didn't include that algorithm in this work is because it's not necessarily intuitive to what, where exactly that threshold would take place. Like yeah. what, what amount of tax liability is too big? That's yeah. for a future research question. Yeah, That's there's it. no there's no universal outcome here, but there yeah. is, I think there, there was, a, what you did put together was a compelling reason for why you would want to consider winding it down, at least in certain scenarios, because again, that additional flexibility is inherently valuable. So exactly. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about kind of like the, the end kind of result of this, which was where does it make sense to take a salary versus dividends versus dynamic salary? And when does it make sense to favor an IPP versus traditional savings vehicles? Yeah, for sure. So the outcomes of, of this research actually looked quite in favor of the IPP overall. But I do want to preface that this is one case study and, and there's just a ton of variables here mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm not not consider or that we're not adjusting for. So it's really going to be, the outcome's really going to be on a case-by-case basis. But for this case, the IPP looked quite favorable. And actually the main findings, again, it comes down to preference of, of what the individual prefers in terms of 
do they want to get every last cent of consumption out of the financial plan or would they prefer to be content with a certain level of consumption and and maximize the multi-generational wealth or final bequest? So for those folks that want to maximize consumption, we found that the IPP with the maximum salary was the best route. It it generated the highest level of, of sustainable spending. But for those individuals that may be content with a lower level of spending, actually, we're better off taking the IPP with the dynamic salary. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because when you're spending a lower amount, the, uh, account, contra- or the account levels of the assets inside the corporation are, are higher, relatively speaking, meaning that they're generating more notional account, higher notional account balances. So just that flexibility of being able to take a dividend to fund consumption ended up being a little bit higher than it would be for the, for the max salary case. Yeah. So I think it was a very interesting finding in that regard. And the way you got the way you guys laid it out was different retirement ages, different monthly spending targets. And yeah, as you said, the the lower spending levels were dynamic salary and IPP. And you know, that's but the thing I found that was interesting there was that is despite the fact that the dynamic salary will not generate IPP room, right? Because it's not salary. So but you don't start off, and just to be clear about your study, you don't start off taking dynamic salary. You start off taking normal salary and then slowly ratcheting up the, the income that's coming from the notional accounts based off of the growing pot of money in the corporation generating return, correct? So that's how it worked out in this case study. And the reason for that was the assumption that initial notional account balances were zero. Fair. So because of that assumption, it, gener- it led to high salary in the beginning. And it took a few years, you know, almost a decade really for that break even point to come in where notional account balances are now high enough that we can pretty much fund consumption uh, with so, dividends. So in a starting from zero scenario, yep. then basically no one, no one has a, they don't have a multi-million dollar portfolio in the corporation. They don't have notional account balances. They're just starting to really get to the point where they can do all this. In that case, then yeah, you know, you're saying salary for a decade, but not only salary, you know, you start taking the notional account value slowly over time. Yep. But the reality is you have this, you have this chart that showed salary decreasing dynamic income increasing. So really what we're saying we were saying with this is even in that scenario the pension made more sense because of probably a combination of higher contribution rates during that 10 year period but also I'm guessing I'm guessing possibly because the, uh, the the pension allows you to top up during during bad market years was that a factor? Yes, absolutely. So all of that still continued. Obviously when you're t- when you're no longer taking salary then you're not going to generate additional contribution room for on a yearly basis due to the salary, but you would still have the opportunity to top up because the IPP growth rate is it's indexed to a prescribed rate that's defined by the Income Tax Act. So in bad years or you know bad market years, you still have those opportunities to to top up the IPP from uh, from corporate assets. Yeah. So basically, the IPP almost universally won in every scenario for a business owner, which I'm sure all the actuaries are letting out a triumphant uh, scream and fist bump in the air by hearing that one now. But then the other piece was, okay, where, did, where salary made sense was kind of along, it's interesting, you kind of could draw a line along a, a relationship between age and spending level, right? And it was the, from what I could see is the, the later, the later you retire, higher spending levels favored salary. Whereas the earlier reti- you retired, the mid-range spending levels, and let's just say you tested a spending of six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16,000 a month, right? Yep. So at the lower end of the spectrum, Salaries didn't make never made sense on the six and ten, six and eight. Salary made sense at the ten and twelve for people retiring at forty five, and 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 then at the tenth and then twelve thousand for fifty five, and then the six at sixty five was fourteen and sixteen. So it was kind of like the later you retire, the more likely dynamic salary makes sense. 
but the higher the income, the more likely or higher the spending need, the more likely salary makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And I think the reason for that from that I took away from that was that at low spending levels, you're going to end up with high, high amount of assets in the corporation, which would generate high amounts of high notional account balances, which would prefer the flexibility of taking those dividends to fund consumption, as opposed to strictly, strictly the salary, which ended up being the uh, optimal solution for those individuals with higher spending levels. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting interplay, right? Because what you had was, what you have is, is that the salary, you know, the more you need now, the more likely salary was necessary in a lot of ways, because it was going to take a long time to get the dynamics up to that level, right? Which then gave you the ability to put more in the pension, which then the pension would sustain your retirement to a greater degree, reducing the need to take notional, the notional accounts over time and dynamic salaries. So it was this, you know, it's a very interesting interplay that all three things were kind of very heavily correlated based off of what is it you actually want to take out every year to live off of, right? And yeah. it, like, it, it wasn't the one, it changed one thing, it changed all three simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's a uh, pretty complicated <laughs> It, uh, well, this is why no one's done it before. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not everybody's willing to put them through the, the self-flagellation uh, of basically <laughs> 7 million variables, but I do commend you for it. I think I actually, when I saw I started laughing, I'm like, good on you. Cause that's, <laughs> that's great when torture yourself. All right. So I think those were kind of the bigger takeaways for me. What, what other, were there any other takeaways for, for you that you found surprising or, or kind of novel? Yeah. So the other interesting piece that I found, and it, it alludes to what we just talked about previously, actually, with the IPP being indexed to a prescribed rate, prescribed growth yeah. rate, is the play. So we actually analyzed two different asset allocation profiles. We, we investigated an individual that, that has a low risk tolerance and a high risk tolerance. So we had um, someone in a 100% equity profile and then someone in a, a 50-50 balanced profile, 50% equity, 50% fixed income. And what we actually saw was holding asset allocation fixed. So looking at looking at the 100% equity case, the IPP was still the optimal outcome, like we we just discussed. But in the 50%, the 50/50 investor, the IPP was more beneficial than it was for the the 100% equity investor. And the reason for that was because of the additional IPP contribution room that would have been generated for the lower the lower risk investor because the expected return of that profile is lower, uh, meaning that you would expect the IPP, the realized growth rate of the IPP to, to lag more than you would the, the 100% equity investor. So that ultimately generated more contribution room for the 50-50 investor, which made the IPP even more appealing to them. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes a lot of intuitive stuff when you know how IPPs work to some degree, right? Like the they're expected to earn 7.5% a year. Now that is a number that's static. It is just in the way these things are calculated. It's not a comment on, on what you should be making. It's completely dependent upon market situations and your risk tolerance, but that is the benchmark they use, right? So if the more conservative you are, the more likely you are to be under 7.5% a year on average, which basically means that the company can contribute more money to the, to the, uh, to the pension on your behalf and benefit from that tax deduction and deferral than if you were in a higher return portfolio. So to me, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things I've kind of heard is that like, hey, this makes this makes sense, but you actually tested it and proved that empirically it absolutely does have a better long-term outcome for the person. The more conservative you are, the better off you are with an IPP. That's right. And and one last caveat, it's uh it's still more beneficial to be a hundred percent equity investor. Though the outcome, the final net worth was still twice as high. Wow. 
but so so it's not a reason to be more conservative just to generate the added no. contribution room. But if you are by nature a more conservative person, then the IPP might be for yeah. you. I mean, hey, you compounded a bigger number, odds are it's going to be bigger. But the reality is, yeah. again, risk tolerance has to be taken into consideration as a constraint. But I also think the yeah. other the other piece of interesting feedback on that too, or the piece we didn't just discuss, is that the more conservative you are, the more that the different the different decomposition of the notional accounts, right? So if you're primarily an equity investor, you're generating more capital gains, which is more CDA credit, which is tax free, which is preferable versus grip, right? And if you're more interest and dividend based, then you're generating more more RDTOH and, and grip. Well, not grip, but RDTOH in general. So the reality is is that those two things were linked, right? So the lower return within the pension also resulted in a lower return within the core, but also less efficient dynamic income so it make it makes sense that hey taking some of that off the table that less efficient dynamic income tax at a higher rate and putting that into a ipp and getting the deduction played out favorably so five thousand foot view looking at this you sit back and say okay this this all makes a lot of intuitive sense yeah exactly everything is interrelated <laughs> yeah and, and that's what i think i really appreciate about your paper you know for all the suffering you put yourself through for it <laughs> the reality is is that everything i thought you know every time i said huh to a result you know you could sit back take a look at the big picture and say you know what doesn't doesn't just make mathematical sense it actually makes a lot of intuitive sense when you understand all these things work together so it's but it's but it takes it takes putting them all in this one big pot and studying them all simultaneously not just for one unique case that you're testing in a financial plan but for like all the seven million calculations you ran that we need to see it before we can actually see the full landscape so i commend you for it and i thank you for it because i think this is a valuable study for the industry in general Thanks, Jason. Yeah, it was a lot of hard work, but I think it's uh, it's definitely valuable. Yes, yeah, so I think I first proofread this about what three months ago. <laughs> yeah, I don't even yeah. know how long I read it before that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably about a year of work. Excellent. Well, I think it's uh, like I said, it's a great contribution to the body of knowledge of the industry. So I thank you for that. Yeah, thanks, Jason. All right, Brandon. So where can people find you if they want to learn more? Yeah, so check out the PWL Capital website. That's where the paper is going to be live. Probably by the time this uh, episode gets released. Yeah. And then our firm PWL Capital also has a, a podcast, the Rational Reminder podcast. I'm sure my my colleague Ben Felix is going to cover the, the results of this paper in, in yeah. a lot of detail. He also has a YouTube channel, Common Sense Investing. Yeah. That you can check out too. No, you got there before I did. I was giving you a shout out to both of those things, both yeah. required required listening and viewing, uh, in my opinion. Yes, gentlemen, you both owe me a beer. So, uh, Braden, thank you so much for taking the time today. Of course. Thanks, Jason. It was awesome. So that was uh, Braden Warwick from PWL Capital. Hope you enjoyed that. I know it may have been hard to follow along at some points, but if you want to understand more about this, go back and listen to the introduction to corporate uh, taxation that I did. And also the, um, I think I actually had an entire episode on notional accounts and the episode on IPPs. This can get a little bit tax heavy. There was a lot of study, but this is incredibly, I'd say, important for business owners because so many key factors are being touched upon here. Income versus dividends. We found that, you know, taking salaries, Dividends just didn't make as much sense as, as income or dynamic income. The use of an IPP has been basically demonstrated to be very valuable in most scenarios. And that's there's a lot of questions that get asked about business owners that got answered in this study. So if you want to learn, if you want to take the time to learn more, it's definitely a value or feel free to reach out. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. 
or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.